From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're checking in with the New Hanover County Schools Turnaround Task Force, formed earlier this year to address the serious challenges faced by the county's lowest performing schools. Now, on past shows, we've talked about the task force and its work, including the issue of ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which we find at higher levels in low-income schools for a host of reasons, including systemic poverty and violence. We've also talked about some of the strategies the district could take to address those ACEs. But on today's show, we're hearing from teachers, almost a dozen in fact, who are working in the schools that are struggling the most to help students improve. And this is where the rubber meets the road, because many of the things teachers want, better pay, more help in the classroom, or even smaller class sizes, will cost money. I recently spoke to a teacher who asked that I not use their name. Their spouse is a sheriff's deputy, and they told me, the sheriff's office provided my husband with a vehicle, with a firearm, with all the equipment he needs to do his job. His division has never made a reasonable budget request that's been turned down by the sheriff. And I can't remember ever hearing about a budget request from the sheriff that's been turned down by the county. And that's good. That's what you want. You want public safety to be fully funded. I just wish we were treated the same way. So to help unpack why teachers sometimes feel undersupported, overworked, micromanaged, and disrespected, and why that matters in the classroom, especially classrooms with struggling students, we're joined by my colleague, Rachel Keith, who has been following the work of the Turnaround Task Force. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. So Rachel, this was the fourth meeting of New Hanover County's Turnaround Task Force. Give me a sense of what this event was like. Yes, it happened at the end of September, and this one was focused around a teacher's roundtable. So they invited about 11 teachers showed up to speak. But before we're going to listen to some of their comments, they had presentations from three subcommittees. They had a subcommittee on educational leadership and then also on community engagement. But we're going to focus around what the mental health subcommittee did, and we're going to start with that first. But before I do that, when we transition to the teacher's comments, what the room looked like is that the turnaround task force members were split between three tables. And actually, board member Stephanie Walker is one of the leaders of this turnaround task force and one of the creators. But board chair Pete Wildeboer was there to listen, and so was board member Melissa Mason. And so what they did with these 11 teachers is that they split them up into the three tables, and then they rotated around. So each one of the turnaround task force members could listen to them. And I sat at the table with the mental health subcommittee, and that is Scott Wisnett. He's formerly of New Hanover Regional Medical Center, and Elizabeth Redenbaugh, who's a former board member, a school board member, and she's also the director of development for Coastal Horizons. And then there were some other task force members at our table. For example, another table, Superintendent Dr. Faust was there with Natalie English of the Chamber of Commerce. County Commissioner Rob Zappel was at that table, and so was Board Chair Pete Wildeboer. There was a number of presentations. One you really focused on was the one that Scott Wisnant put together, and this was based in part on data from NCDPI. People can find on School Digger. We'll have links to all that. And we've talked about some of this research that he's been doing on previous shows, but this was new research into how 
some of these schools are doing. That's correct. So the 2023 school year proficiency data, so the how the kids did on the EOGs, those were released. So that was uploaded to School Digger. So a lot of his research was based on that data that came out. And there was a lot of celebration, rightfully so, because now there are only seven low-performing schools instead of 12 is what they started with because they did so well on last year's tests and they grew. But Wisnet broke down the EOG math and reading scores for third, fourth, and fifth grade. And it looks like there's still some work to do. And that's you're talking about the end of grade tests that are one of the major benchmarks that we use when we're looking at how schools overall are doing, right? That's correct. That's what they look at. All right. Here's Scott Wisnant. When we talk about celebrating improving schools, there should be a comma after that, but there's still a long way to go. Freeman here, their third grade math, last year that was 6% of those kids passed. This year, 17.5. That's 187% improvement. That's great, but still... 17.5 percent. Well, we've got some disparities in our testing that we've just got to address. The fifth grade uh, science test, the white kids at Ogden will pass at about 97 percent. Black kids at Freeman will pass about 7 percent. Same test. What are we doing? Uh, we've got to address that. Blacks don't come within 40 percentage points of whites on any grade level test in 2023. Now last year it was they didn't come within 45 points. But the progress we made from last year to this year if we continue at that rate, we'll close this gap in 18 to 25 years, which is another way of saying the gap's too large, we've got to fix it, so, which is why we've got to take some measures to get into these schools and try to fix the underlying issues these kids are facing. Now, it's important to note that Scott here is talking about white students and black students, and that's not an absolute correlation when we're talking about these performance, but when you look at the low-performing schools, we are by and large, talking about low-income students. And so a lot of those black families are dealing with a lot of ACEs. We've talked about this on previous shows. So that's why Scott's talking about Adverse childhood experiences. Exactly, yeah. So that's why Scott's talking about it in fairly stark racial terms. But certainly there are affluent black families whose students are doing well. And there are certainly low-income, poor white families whose students are not doing well. But when we look at these schools, we really do see things break down pretty starkly along racial lines. And in their work with their subcommittee with mental health, they talk to about a dozen teachers and say, well, how can we fix this? And a lot of them, according to Scott Wisnett, said they need smaller class sizes. And a figure they cited was 10, 10 students per class. And according to Scott, why they said they couldn't handle more kids, because a lot of times in these higher poverty, higher minority concentrated schools, they have more ACEs like we talked about. And again, when we're talking about students who are dealing with ACEs, we're talking about students who have trouble with concentration, trouble with emotional regulation. And some of them come from households where discipline is not a priority. It's food or housing. You've got parents who are working multiple jobs. Sometimes they're being raised by friends, uncles, grandparents. Some of these teachers talked about their students, parents, some of them are incarcerated. Yeah. And so all of that compounds and makes students a bit more difficult to manage for teachers. And every teacher I've spoken to has described this where one student is maybe talking when they should be listening. That encourages another student to act that way. And the behavior can kind of have a a ripple effect. So the more students you have with these challenges in a classroom, the more challenging that classroom gets. And it was interesting after he finished giving this 
presentation, Chief Academic Officer Dr. Patrice Faison kind of was taken aback by the class size recommendation. 10 is a class size is normally what we say in education. It kind of gets dangerous because you get in that tutoring. You feel more like you're tutoring. So we, that's not normally a suggestion. So I, that, that was one of the things that I just wonder where that came from. Well, it's either that, either the class side of 10 or get more adults in the room. Yeah. So that was an interesting characterization of that being dangerous, but nonetheless, the committee still said in these schools, the teachers, these lower performing schools, the teachers say that they spend more time on classroom management than teaching and learning. And again, he says additional behavioral support specialists would help at least one per grade level is what they recommended. They also recommended more training and professional development and being trauma informed and dealing with, again, these difficult behaviors. But with the caveat that this training should happen over the summer when the teachers are less busy with day-to-day operations of the school. They also mentioned having parenting classes in some of these lower income schools. Not necessarily that sounds a little patronizing, but sometimes these parents need support with homework or navigating what the teachers want. And it's just an additional support for them if they really are struggling with their students and their academic work. Absolutely. And I'll just say quickly here that we've heard from folks at Freeman where there used to be a very robust PTA. This is one of the major things they would do is help parents if it was a course on history or it was we're going to do fractions, whatever it was. It, it was a quick crash course for the parents so they could then have the confidence to show their kids the way through maybe a homework assignment. One of the last points that Scott Wisnett made, and he's said this before, and the task force redistricting, as we know, is politically fraught. But here's what he said. We didn't want to go here, but we're going to have to. We've got to aim for better socioeconomic balance in our schools. Again, teachers and staff uniformly volunteer this when you talk about it. And it is a fact that the school district is going to be embarking soon on redistricting. They've already contracted with Cropper GIS to look at overcrowding and under-enrollment in some of these schools. And we do see over-enrollment in these majority white schools and under-enrollment in these majority black schools. So this this is a conversation to come. I also wanted to point out, which connects to all of this, about this economic imbalance across our county, which we've discussed many times on this show and reporters in this area have covered it. But board member Hugh McManus at the October meeting, this was not at the roundtable, he was addressing some of these issues that are talked about in the task force. I went to a school the other day, which I will not divulge, and I said, what is the average price of a house in your school district? And they said, over $400,000. Who do you think is moving into that school district? So what does that do to your scores? So it is a socioeconomic. That has a lot to do. Why don't we expect students to come to summer school? Why don't we take the lower performing schools and make them year round? Because there are four breaks. During those breaks, the kids could take trips to increase what I call peripheral education, which helps students want to improve themselves. And so we've got to get out of the box again and do things. If we sit buses, I mean, we can spend three and a half million dollars on AI. Let's let's do something for these kids to bring them up. All EOG is 3-8, but then reading and math, and it looks great for all. But when you break it down into the lower socioeconomic subgroups, these kids are going into high school and they're not reading. 
So what are we going to do about it? And so for the first time, we were talking about what we can do to help kids educationally and not politics or religion. I mean, we just don't, let's walk it. Let's don't talk it. And this is our chance. So again, this highlights some of the work the task force is trying to help inform how does the school board redistrict or which policies would help these low performing schools. So McManus has some concrete ideas that could help and the school district could consider these. And yes, when he said that $3.5 million on AI, the state budget, it did allocate $3.2 million for this AI surveillance tech project. And it was described by Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust as a intercom based school safety system. So he's kind of calling into question the priorities of the budgeting. And we're talking about these low-income schools. And as he said, Scott Wisnett said, there is a proficiency gap that, that the school district has to work on. Yeah. And I can certainly say when we've spoken to teachers from around this district, there are a lot of investments in software and hardware. There's the district's one-to-one program, which is a project designed to get an electronic device in the hands of every student. There's certainly been talks about how much funding we should put into hardscaping schools. Those are you know, security measures like fences and armored vestibules and security cameras. And it's not to say that all of these things are unimportant. Many teachers have said they're very important. Yes. But if you absolutely force them to pick a top budget priority, many of them say, we need staff. Staff first, then bells and whistles, then software, then landscaping, all of that. But over and over again, when we talk to teachers, that's what we hear. And that's what we're about to hear of the teachers from this turnaround task force. So Cynthia Liberty of Wrightsboro, she actually surveyed her staff and brought it to the round table. And this is what she is reporting out, what the staff say they want. And she's going to talk about EC staff, that's exceptional children's staff, and then ESL staff, and that is English as a second language, and those are majority Spanish-speaking students. So building more EC staff, we have a large EC population at our school that require a lot of one-on-one and small group support that when one um, large behavior does happen, it takes away from a lot of the other students that are in the room, and we just don't have enough people to be able to properly address those needs. And so then that's happening more and more often. And then our second one, we have a very high ESL population at our school as well. And um, I don't know in several other schools in the county, but um, having more of our ESL staff being in our schools and even staff members that can translate, having some parent Mm -hmm. liaisons that can Mm -hmm. come in and help us translate for the purpose of calling parents and having that contact be a true contact. And what she means by that true contact is what's been happening because a lot of the schools have to share these parent liaisons that the district have hired. They just send kind of an email message in Spanish that says, did you understand these directions from this email or from this message? But what she's saying is that there needs to be an actual person on the campus that can help these kids and their families navigate the school system. And I also heard this as a point of frustration for some of the principals of these lower performing schools that they really want someone on their campus to really help them translate when parents come up to the school. So again, the liberty is talking about that popcorn effect where you have one student who is, you know, maybe having an emotional outburst or is misbehaving, and that causes a ripple effect throughout the classroom, and it really can just overwhelm a teacher completely. And one of the ways to help that is additional staff. You know, we also heard from Caroline Smithson from Blair Elementary, and she's talking about this issue of when, you know, you call on an administrator or a counselor for help they might not be able to help you because they might just have their hands full. So anyway, here's here's Caroline Smithson. 
Sometimes you might not get a response, you might not get help you need, um, or you might not have somebody who is trained in how to respond appropriately. So absolutely bringing more people in, I think that's a, a huge factor. And then um, again, how do we keep people? You know, people are leaving left and right. People are considering it. So she's talking about, and we've already referenced this, the students with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, or they have disruptive behaviors. And the teachers are saying they really need those additional staff members to add additional layers of support so that they can focus on teaching. We're going to move to Sarah Stepanski. She works at Gregory and she talks about, again, having these people that are qualified to help support the kids and the teachers. Qualified humans in the building, people that have trained to be educators, teaching classes and students, um, which you would think would be an automatic. It's not always. We lost people from last year. We achieved great growth last year, and we lost people. We cut positions and money, so now we're do better next year with less people. So at the July board meeting, I did see this confirmed. Kim O'Brien is the professional development supervisor for the school system. She talked about the district having more teachers that are coming in with these specialized licenses, meaning that it's not the standard teaching license. So they're having to do more training for these employees who didn't necessarily get degrees in teaching. And that is what Sarah Stepanski is talking about. So it's not just that they need warm bodies, right? They need talented people, they need people with the right training, and the alternate route, as it sometimes gets called, that generates much-needed teachers, those people do need additional ongoing professional development. So it's not just about having someone to be in the room. It's having the right person with the right training in the room. All right, well, we're going to hear more from teachers from around New Hanover County's school district in just a moment. We need to take a quick break. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. She's sharing what she learned at a recent meeting of the New Hanover County School District's Turnaround Task Force. This was an opportunity for teachers from around the district to share some of their major concerns. Christy Howe, she was the Southeastern Teacher of the Year in 2019, and she reflects with all of the different hats, all the different things that the teachers have to do. Here's Christy Howell. She's at Forest Hills right now. My teachers feel very spread thin, and particularly Mm -hmm. as more people are being pulled from the building, Mm -hmm. they're asked to wear more hats. Mm -hmm. So they're not just in charge of providing instruction for their classrooms. You know, they're also navigating special duties and committees and all these other things. And, you know, all the teachers I work with, like, they love what they do, Mm -hmm. and they want to do all the Mm -hmm. things. Like, we truly Mm -hmm. think we can do all the things. (laughs) But it is really hard to do all the things well. Right. Um, and so making sure that there are those supports with mental health and such so that teachers can focus on the things that they do. 
And we heard earlier, we're going to, we're talking about all of the hats, all the pressures that come down on the teaching profession. And we did hear earlier from Cynthia La Liberty of Wrightsboro, and she's talking about when teachers get pushed to the brink, she's seen turnover firsthand at her own school. So I've been at Wrightsboro for, like I said, this is my sixth year there. And um, in all six years, we have not had a fourth grade team that has made it through the entire school year. So this current year, we have somebody who's leaving um, in two weeks. And last year, we had somebody leave in April. Um, When they left in last April, we had split up the class. So we ended the year with 28 children in each of our classes, which was difficult and hard to even fit them in, in our room. And so you can hear that some of these situations that the teachers are put in are very overwhelming. And we're about to hear from Robert Motley. He is from Mosley, and he gave an emotional reaction to how overwhelming this job can be when some of the task force members asked him about his job and how he feels. And you will hear at the tail end of the soundbite, uh, Assistant Superintendent Julie Varnum agreeing with him on how hard this job can be. On the teacher side, sometimes you're just, by the end of it, you're like, what else do you want me to do? Like, you know, like you're throwing up scores that our schools suck. And then what else do you want? I can't do it all. Can't be a parent and a disciplinarian. Overwhelming. So, What Robert Molly is talking about here is just the sense that they are, one, drowning responsibilities, while also dealing with some unprecedented challenges like the learning loss of COVID, dealing with remote learning during COVID itself, dealing with some of the ACEs-powered behavioral issues that was also aggravated by COVID. It's, It's just a lot. And again, you layer that on top of political pressure, whether it's from the left or the right, on micromanaging what goes on in the classroom, and then a series of raises from the state that has just not kept up with inflation. You can really hear the emotion in his voice when he's talking about this. The other thing he's talking about is when he says, our school scores suck. He's talking about this way that schools get graded. That's why we're talking about low-performing schools. And there's two ways that gets sort of tabulated, and it's proficiency and growth. So 80% of that is proficiency. That's like actual benchmarks that students have to hit. 20% of it is growth. And we hear a lot about this, uh, and sometimes it's, it's not clear in the reporting. So here's the deal. The reason that you factor in growth is that if you've got a student who's behind, say they're, they're just behind in third grade and they're going to go into fourth grade and they're still going to be behind. Every year they're going to be told, you're failing. You're not hitting your benchmarks. That's devastating for a child's sense of self-esteem. And at a certain point you get learned helplessness. Well, why should I even try? I'm just never going to hit the mark. So growth acknowledges that, hey, yeah, you actually did do better this year than last year. So it's a way to sort of keep from crushing a kid's dreams, to be blunt. Yes. And State Superintendent Catherine Truitt is looking at this breakdown of the 80-20. Most of it is the report card shows basically economic status right now. It's 80 percent proficiency. And so you can hear how upsetting this can be for Motley when they are working with these students and they are making progress, but they're just not passing some of these tests. And to be fair, Dr. Charles Faust, the superintendent, says that his goal is for teachers and students to focus on growth, 
which is a gateway to proficiency. So if they focus on the growth factor, then eventually they'll be proficient. But then if you listen to Scott Wisnitz closing that proficiency gap, even between white and black students, that's going to take a long time and it is a long road ahead. And so this is a difficult situation. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if students don't reach proficiency, they are sort of tumbling out the end of the public education system at the end of 12th grade, if they make it to 12th grade, and they haven't learned what they were supposed to learn. And so the reason that there's focus on growth sometimes is that you don't want to set up what seems like an impossible challenge for students. But at the end of the day, you've also got to get them where they need to be academically. Yeah, and Dr. Faust addressed this outright at the October meeting. He said, I'm getting a lot of comments that are saying all I care about is test scores, but at the end of the day, I want to make sure that the kids can read when they graduate and that they are economically able to compete in our market-based system, that they can get a job. So this is all difficult. So to come back to the teachers, the reason we're talking about proficiency and growth is that it has been very difficult to move the needle on that without additional help because classroom behavior, classroom attention specifically, is the most crucial. I'm glad you tool. said attention. Yeah. Yes. This is the most crucial tool in getting students from point A to point B when, it, when we talk about proficiency. And during the pandemic or during the height of the pandemic, there was a lot of federal money that helped round out the staff. And as Dr. Faust has spoken about in many Board of Education meetings, that federal funding is now drying up and we're seeing the impact of it. That's right. And here is Linda Cox. She is from Myrtle Grove and she's talking about, again, we heard Robert Motley's, I can only be so many things to these students and so we need additional support. And here is Linda talking about that issue. We had a counselor cut this year. We went from three to two. So that has had a huge impact on people having to deal with issues that like that they're not equipped to deal with mm-hmm. you know we've had to turn kids away because there's just not enough time in the day for our for our counselors to service them all so just having more mental health services within the school that these kids can reach out to our our one and a half mental health therapists are at full capacity and during this discussion, also uh, Assistant Superintendent Julie Varnum was at the table with these teachers, and she asked Linda Cox if this was a true wait list because parents do have to give consent for their child to go through clinical uh, mental health therapy. And Linda Cox said, oh, yes, we're very good about getting consent from parents, and even with that, we do have a wait list. So, yeah, and to that point, we asked Charles Faust about this earlier this year, and we presented him with a hypothetical situation. What if the New Hanover Community Endowment were to offer $10 million every year in recurring funding for mental health in the New Hanover County School District? Do you think that would help? And he was actually fairly lukewarm in his response. He said, I don't know. I'd have to look at the data. He suggested that not everything that people point to as a mental health issue is a mental health issue. And he also defended the district's ability to deliver mental health services to students using third-party contractors and not using in-house counselors or therapists. We'll have links to that interview on the page, and that's sort of how he sees things. But we definitely hear different stories when we talk to teachers. Yes, that's correct. And, you know, the county does provide for this service, these clinical mental health therapists, and the district is doing better in terms of having that staff than in surrounding counties. But again, like you said, Ben, and what you hear from these teachers is the need is great. So we do need to address that need. 
And here's Christy Bryan. She works at Snipes. And again, it's not just mental health therapists or counselors or administrators. They need just TAs. And we've talked about how the TAs were very upset a couple years ago when there wasn't that pay increase and some of them did leave. Here is Christy Bryan at Snipes. We need more support staff. We need more teacher's assistants. Our fifth grade doesn't have one. Um, our first grade is losing one, and we're not getting that position back. So I taught kindergarten for two years at Snipes, and having a one-on-one uh, -on -one assistant with me, we move mountains. I had a group. She had a group. Everybody else was independent, working on what they needed, and we rotated. So you can hear this teacher, Christy Bryan, saying how much of a difference this makes when you have someone in that room with those kids, you can both tag team and really do a good job and give those kids more support that they need. That's right. And later in the show, we're going to talk more about what kind of resources and we're usually here talking about funding because it's money that provides for staff. It's money that moves those mountains. So there's more to cover about where the resources that is the money is going to come from. But first, we need to take a quick break. I'm Ben Schachman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. I'm here today with my colleague, Rachel Keith, who's sharing some of her takeaways and the stories she heard at a recent meeting of New Hanover County School District's Turnaround Task Force. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. We've talked about staffing. We've, we've talked about losing people. We've talked about the respect for the profession. We've talked about the teachers want to focus on academics. Yes, they want to be supportive of the students' mental health and their behavior, but they need additional people to do that is what they say. But we're going to hear from Courtney Hill. She is at Holly Shelter, and she's just talking about school supplies. One thing I would really like for our school is just resources for students and for teachers. Because, so folders, colored pencils, because we have a lot of low economic kids that don't have access to those resources. So a lot of us are pulling out our own money and buying the resources. You can hear Scott Wisnett, who is part of the mental health subcommittee of the task force, asking, what, what do you need? And actually, later in that conversation, Wisnett said, we used to throw away truckloads of folders from the hospital. And also Stephanie Walker was listening and so was Elizabeth Redenbaugh and they were very surprised. You need folders. And this school did very well. Holly Shelter was one of the best performing Title I schools in the entire state. So these teachers are doing really well, but you still hear this teacher saying, I need folders. And we know that teachers, we hear this constantly, they spend a lot of their own money on their school supplies. We hear from parents being upset about buying these large school supply lists. So it's an issue. And she also added that they lost an MTSS coordinator. That's a coordinator that does academics and behavioral support. So she was adding to that list of we lost this person this year. The county commissioners, I mean, a large share of their budget goes to the schools, but we still have this teacher saying that she needs folders for her classroom. 
So we're going to hear from Eric Bigsby of College Park, and he talked about this resource issue. He talked about not getting some of the software programs that he wanted. He really liked vocabulary, but he couldn't get it this year for his classroom. He wants more autonomy and what resources to pick. He also said that he didn't necessarily like the reading program that the school chose. The whole goal is teach the kids. But if we can't do that because we were given, you know, hey, go run the NASCAR 500 or whatever in Daytona in a 73 Volkswagen van, you'll, you'll might finish, you won't win. <laughs> I mean, the tools we were given weren't good enough to assist in what we're doing. So, I mean, if money were no option, yeah, we'd have the autonomy in our own classroom to have those choices into what we knew would teach our kids best. And this comment was also in response to Assistant Superintendent Julie Varnum when he was talking about the resources that he didn't really like. She said, are you scaffolding the materials for these different learners? Because he's saying that some of the materials aren't reaching the lowest, you know, where his students are, which is not proficient right now. And he's saying, well, of course I do that. But, you know, still the type of instructional tool that I have that was chosen for me is not the best for what I need to do. And just a quick note, when we're talking about scaffolding, we're talking about a level of challenging material for students that maybe not every student can handle on their own. And that means spending additional time with students who are maybe not quite there to help them wrap their head around the assignment. And that means more time more time for a teacher, more time for a teacher's assistant. So scaffolding is a way to make a smaller, less flexible curriculum work for a broader range of student ability, but it takes time and energy and effort, and that means money. That's right, and a lot of teachers say, you know, they have sometimes diverse classrooms where they have a lot of AIG, they have middle-of-the-road learners, you have kids that are behind, and they have to reach each one of those. That's the expectation, that they reach every single student in that classroom. And so if they don't have the specific resource that they're asking for to do that really big lift, then you can hear his frustration with that. So we're going to move to Matt Sullivan. He works at Williston, and he's talking about this huge budget issue that comes up every election cycle. But it's looking like, do you really want to fix it? Because we're voting for people that say they're going to fix it. And from being in the state in close to 17 years, bringing my whole family down here, nothing's changed. So Matt is referring to the recent state budget. I mean, the average teacher got a 4% raise. The base pay for beginning teachers rose from $37,000 to $39,000. At the top end of the pay scale, $54,000 to $5,100. No reinstatement of master's pay. There was no accounting for cost of living or inflation. So teachers continue to be frustrated with these incremental changes and that North Carolina continues to stay toward the bottom of the nation in supporting their educational system. And Sullivan also talked about the moving around of leadership. There were a lot of changes this year. We've discussed that on the newsroom and in my reporting. They've moved a lot of successful administrators to other schools, and he really liked his former principal, Christopher Madden, but now Christopher Madden is at Hoggard, the new principal. He supports her, but he's saying that these changes are hard for the staff when they want to build a good overall culture at the school. Let's change the narrative, change the culture, and that man who hired me is no longer there. So now we got a whole rebuild and I'm carrying the baton in the right direction, but that's the problem. I mean, it starts at the top, 
we need the resources and a school. These schools are the ones that shouldn't be cut at all. And again, he's talking about these lower performing schools where they have high poverty, high minority. They need consistency with people. They need consistency with leadership. And that is very important to him. And now we're going to move to recruitment of even new teachers that some of these teachers are saying they had student teachers, but they're kind of changing their mind. We've heard from Linda Cox from Myrtle Grove, and she is having a conversation with Julie Varnum about recruiting, again, new teachers to the profession. So my student teacher last year finished her student teaching and said, I'm not going to be a teacher. Not because of anything I did or anything the kids did. She was just like, I really don't think I want to do this. I was like, oh, okay. We hear that over and over and over. Even if we can get student teachers in, they'll work alongside our best of the best and then say, I'm not doing it. And again, the task force members said why. And it's all of the things that we have already discussed. So here's another example. This is from Christy Bryan. She was the one who was moving mountains at Snipes about not being able to support herself on the salary she's earning right now. And most of us probably know teachers who work at least one second job to make ends meet. So here she is. And as far as the, the teacher burnout goes, I, in my opinion, it's the pay. I can barely support myself and my fiance, and it's just the two of us. And we don't have kids yet. And I'm like, uh, we're getting married in November. And so I'm not necessarily stressed at school. But then when I'm coming home, I'm like, oh, man, I forgot to do this paperwork. Or I'm thinking about some of my kids and I can't afford groceries or gas or whatever, pay my mortgage, like whatever it may be. Is, I mean, I have, I've thought about I don't want to quit teaching. I love my kids. I love my job. I love my school. I've been there for nine years. But if I can't support myself, then what do I do? So I think she's making a good point there that this is a difficult job. And as she's saying, the pay is not commensurate with the challenges. It's not keeping up with inflation. It's become an additional burden as part of the job. But they really do, these teachers really do love this job. In fact, one of the things we hear from teachers all the time is that if you didn't really, really love doing this, you would you would not do this. That's right. And I think that's more true now than it was maybe 10 years ago because the challenges are just so much more extreme. So one last thing I wanted to touch on, Rachel, this was a piece of a conversation that you captured while you were there. And it's about the actual facilities, which is something we hear about quite a bit. I mean, there's some very, very nice facilities here at some schools in New Hanover County, but that's not the case everywhere. Yes, this is Alicia Montanaro, and she works at Freeman. Another thing that's been a point of contention in our building, um, and this might seem silly, but our building looks like crap. Like, we ask our children to come to school every day and learn in an environment where the paint is peeling off the walls, the floors look dirty, there's cockroaches in our lights, there's cockroaches on the floor. No one's going to learn like that. We haven't independently confirmed that this is what's going on in the school, but, you know, nonetheless, she said that this is an impediment to learning in her school, and she would like some attention on it, that this is a part of providing safety and comfort. I certainly think it is an open secret that there are some schools and some facilities in New Hanover County that are just below par, that are not that are not equitably appointed as other as other facilities. I think, you know, the, the example I hear quite often is New Hanover High School doesn't have its own track, which has dealt with a, a number of, you know, structural issues, the floor of Brogdon Hall, for example. And 
I think there is, in some community members we've spoken to, a sense of learned helplessness in that, well, this has always been the way. There's always been a nice school and a less nice school, and no one has ever cared about us. And I also think we've heard from people who have moved to New Hanover County from, you know, the from the Pacific Northwest or or you know the New York, New Jersey area, Chicago, and are very comfortable advocating vocally for themselves about the quality of the school that their kids go to, who don't have that learned helplessness, who will demand uh, quality accommodations for their kids, and I think that that has maybe in some sense accelerated the disparity between some of these facilities. We've heard from a lot of these teachers. Actually, we heard from each one that attended. But what they did at the end of of listening to the teachers is that they asked the task force members to give some takeaways. And so I sat at this table and I listened. And over and over again, we had cuts. We lost this person. We need this person. Here is Scott Wisnett. And so he talked about that in his takeaway. And then at the end, you can hear Dr. Faust pushing back on him, and so does Natalie English. She's at the Chamber of Commerce, and she was sitting at Dr. Faust's table. And then you kind of hear some pushback between the teachers and the other task force members at Wisnet's table. I was shocked to learn from all three groups uh, how many are dealing with cuts from last year. I did not realize that there were that many Mm -hmm. personnel and other cuts in special areas. And I mean, I know there's reality behind that, but uh, that was alarming. some of the schools that made progress last year had cuts in significant areas, and it's question whether they can duplicate that now, given mm-hmm. those cuts. Yeah. Can I clarify? That's ESSER. Those are ESSER funds, not our local funds. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and, and I think the other part of that that Charles just whispered is that it was related to ARP. Yeah. So it was pandemic-related increases yeah. that have now fought, we've followed a little bit. I, the teachers didn't make that distinction. It was yeah, a well, cut. Yeah, well, they've never been involved with that. What, yeah, it doesn't like, yeah. matter, really. Yeah. So you have some debate over to what extent the school system had cuts, control over these cuts. And I did put in a public records request about a couple weeks ago to determine whether or not these cuts did come from ESSER or they came from other sources. And so I'm investigating that right now. But it is interesting that... Yes, some of this federal money did dry up, but the teachers are still left without these positions. And there's a reason behind it, but it still doesn't make it any easier is what they're saying. This really comes down to the issue of where the funding comes from. And I will say Superintendent Charles Faust has been pretty adamant about what he thinks the district can do with the current staff and the current tools it has. But many other people, elected officials, county commissioners, board of education members, teachers, seem to at least acknowledge that teachers feel like they need more help. They need more staff. They need mental health professionals. Bill Rivenbark, chair of the New Hanover County Board of Commissioners, said at a a recent event where Tom Tillis, Senator Tom Tillis, Mm -hmm. visited and was talking about federal funding that could help with behavioral health and mental health issues. And Rivenbark said, we can't lowball this. We can't try to get away with maybe just a part-time counselor. We need a licensed therapist. We need a licensed clinical person. Yeah, that costs more money. But he basically said, this is an important issue. We need to fund the person who qualified to deal with that. And Rivenbark was pulling that from his conversations with people in the education field. The question is, where's that money coming from? To many people, federal money seemed like a magic solution to a lot of the problems, not just in the educational world, believe me, but specifically when it came to funding positions like counselors and therapists. Now that money is dried up. That's Faust's point, is that this was never supposed to be permanent funding. And what Scott Wisnett is saying is that, okay, 
that's fine. That's the reality that's behind it. But we know we had a problem. We know the problem has gotten worse. We know that with help from federal money, we are able to start to turn the tide. Now the federal money has gone. Now what are we going to do? And I think it's worth pointing out that New Hanover County is, I believe, Rachel, you told me in the top five of counties that provide local money. For teachers. For teachers that supplements state money. But it's very common in these conversations to hear local officials basically punt to state officials. State officials look to local officials. Everyone looked to the federal government, which is why that conversation with uh, Senator Tillis was so interesting. And now there's the New Hanover Endowment, too. And now there's the New Hanover Endowment, which will be yet another place that people can look. But I think what frustrates teachers, and this is really at the core of what Scott was saying, is that teachers don't really care about the bureaucratic details of which funding stream filled which part of which position. They know that things were better when they had the help. Now they don't have the help. Yes. And I will say I have sat for two years watching these budget discussions. And this last year, there was no pushback at all about the $3,434 per student. And that was the same amount from last year. And so Dr. Faust said this is the what they ask of the county commission. There wasn't a lot of debate. There was more debate the prior year when the TAs were showing up to the board meetings and protesting that they wanted a higher hourly wage. They wanted more of that ESSER funding to go to their salaries. And the county's point of view is that we can't sustain these with this type of money, this funding pot. But there was also discussion that the reason why they didn't make a larger ask is that they're losing students. They had a thousand students less enrolled in the schools at that time. And so Faust's point of view is that we have to live within our means. We don't have these extra students. We can't claim these extra positions because we are losing. But again, we are hearing from 11 teachers that are saying that they do want people to ask for these support staff so that they can better do their jobs. And so that is that is the takeaway from what they are saying. Speaking of takeaways, Pete Wildeboer, who's the chair of the New Hanover County Board of Education, was there. And you caught what his takeaway from this event was. More people in the classrooms to support our students, TAs especially, uh, pre- universal pre-K. Yes. Yeah, you know, that sounds, I heard that across the board uh, that we really need to you know, those students that come to kindergarten ready to go, you know, supporting our teachers, uh, empowering them to continue to be leaders in the classroom, but also outside the classroom. And it is interesting, New Hanover County Commissioner Rob Zappel is also on this task force, and his takeaway was, he said, pre-K, 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 pre-K. And it is interesting because at my table, and I stayed with this group, and the teachers rotated through, that did not come up at all. A lot of it was the discussion about resources, money, and people. So it, it is true that different tables had different points of discussion, and at Rob Zappel's table was himself, Pete Wildeboer, Natalie. English, Dr. Faust. So there was a lot of power players in in that group. But again, at my table, basically, they just said, what do you need? And that's how the discussion started. And there, there weren't a lot of the task force members talking. There were a couple of times where Julie Varnum, because she works for the school system, would interject and ask questions. But mainly it was the teachers talking at my table. So one of Wildeboer's main takeaways was the need to support teachers. And that's what teachers are asking for, support. They want respect. They want autonomy. They want to be paid more. They want more staff to help them handle the challenging circumstances that they find themselves in these days. I don't think I've talked to a lot of people who disagree with that. I don't hear very often from people who say, I don't support teachers. They are 
brought up all the time in conversations of what makes a community vibrant. They're sort of the baseline of like what's affordable for housing. They're an integral part of any good community. The question is, who is going to support them? And here we mean money. how. How? We mean, where are the dollars going to come from? Will they come from the county? Will they come from the endowment? Will they come from the state? Will they come from the federal government? It's easy to say, and it, I mean no disrespect to Chairman Wildeboard, but it is easy to say that you support teachers, that you want to support them. I think almost everyone I've ever met in my life feels that way. But how? With what money? From where? And the, what do you say about them in public conversations? And what do you say about them in public conversations? So I think those are the questions about the climate and the funding that the task force has really brought to the surface, I think the question for us moving forward is what gets done about it. So obviously there's a lot more to talk about here, but for this show, it's about all we can cover. Rachel, what's next for the task force? Yes, they are meeting again in January, and this time they're going to hear from parents. They have done a roundtable with principals, now teachers, now parents. So I will be at that meeting, and I am so grateful to the task force to let me listen into these authentic conversations that these teachers are having with the task force members. I really think they are telling them what they really would like to see. All right. Well, Rachel Keith, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to my colleague, Rachel Keith, and to the members of New Henry County Schools' Turnaround Task Force for allowing her access to these candid and revealing conversations. Thanks also to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>